Holy and gracious Father, this day we come into this place, a place that has been set aside by this congregation to worship you. Father, to lift your name on high and to hear your word preached and, and uh, to sing praises and, and to pray to you. But Father, this day we come asking one thing, that as we read your word in, Mark's, in Matthew 7, as we hear uh, Jesus tell the story of a man who, uh, who wisely built his house upon rock and another one who foolishly built his house upon sand, and how each one, as the storms came and the rains came down and the winds blew, how each one, Father... Uh, fared in that experience. And we realize, Lord, this day that our own lives are built either on rock or on sand. That, Father, we may have wonderful plans and we may have wonderful dreams, but if they're not on the foundation of your Son, Jesus Christ, it all comes to naught. Father, we pray this day that we would hear your word. We would let it penetrate our hearts. That, Father, we would let it uh, change and affect our actions and that we would refocus and recenter our lives on Jesus Christ in whom we have put our faith. Father, grant us this day that our worship before you would be acceptable in your sight and a pleasure. And Father, that all the world would know that in this place Jesus Christ is glorified. This we pray in his holy name as we, as we sing his praises together. And amen. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 7, uh, verses 24 through 27. And I'm reading from the Message Bible. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements, to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. The word of God for the people of God. And we didn't pray the prayer for guidance. <laughs> okay. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. That is, the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed. We will hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. We're in Matthew, the seventh chapter. The scripture uh, script you just heard was obviously the story of the wise man and the foolish man, each of whom had a choice as to where to build the foundation. You know, uh, the Sermon on the Mount that this comes in is, is part of Matthew's way of arranging the life of Jesus. Each of the Gospels approaches Jesus' life with essentially the same things, but arranged maybe a, a little bit differently and with the different emphases. And some of them have some unique things to them. The Sermon on the Mount is really uh, unique. Luke does have a Sermon on the Plain that includes some of the elements of the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, uh, Matthew is very concerned with us getting the point that Jesus is redoing the history of Israel in his life. 
that the way he is born is sort of an upside down, it's a mirror image of what Israel was going through. And the Sermon on the Mount, really he takes the law that they received in the wilderness, he's taking a lot of things, and he's, uh, uh, he's, he's going through the same path that Israel did as the people of God, and he is the Son of God. And so you have, uh, within the Sermon on the Mount, you have a lot of instances where Jesus says, you have heard, and he says, but I tell you, you have heard, you heard from Moses, thou shalt not kill, but I tell you that if you, in your heart, if you hate someone, that you've already murdered them. That's essentially what he's saying. Murder is, is, it comes out of the heart. And so it's not the outward actions that matter as what is in the heart. And Jesus talks a lot about this. He calls uh, hypocrites people who uh, believe, uh, who act one way but teach another. With their mouths they say something, but their actions don't reflect what they're saying. He says that they're like whited sepulchers, which means a painted grave. Uh, you know, uh, they would be buried in these caves, They're, they would be painted white, and he says they're whited sepulchers. They look really good on the outside, but on the inside, they're just dead men's bones. And a lot of people live that way, they're dead on the inside. And so the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to get people to really look at how upside down their lives are. That what we think is important isn't necessarily important. That a lot of times we get things wrong. And our children, as they grow up and as they watch us, uh, what are they thinking? Well, apparently it's really important to work hard because dad, he works really hard and mom, she works hard. And so that's the most important thing in life. You've got to work hard. And they worry all the time about money. So money must be really important. Uh, they never go to church, so church must not be important. They never read God's word, but, you know, they read the newspaper. You see how, and so a lot of children grow up, even children within the church, and they get the wrong idea about life and what's important. And Jesus, what he's trying to do here is to say, not only to the people who are listening, but eventually to the whole world through all time, that you have to be very careful that you build your house, your life, on the proper foundation, because it's so easy to build on things that won't last and we, we, we recognize that in our society. We see people who have reached the heights of fame and fortune, and then one day you open the paper, and they took their own life. A public declaration, declaration that they couldn't live anymore. And it may have been due to any number of things, but, what it, but it, what it says is life is hard, life is tough, and even with those things... They don't solve that particular problem. They don't care, take care of mental illness or they don't take care of fears and worries that overset us. You know, you, you could give me two, two, three, four billion dollars. It would not take care of my claustrophobia. It'd still be there. Those fears are still there. So Jesus is telling a story today about a wise man and a foolish man. And we know that story. Wise man builds on the solid bedrock, kind of like New York City, all those skyscrapers, they're only built in that position, in that place, because New York City happens to have an abundance of bedrock. They've got rivers, and you've got the ocean not far away, but there's this bedrock that's there, and you can see it in the cliffs along the Hudson River if you travel up from uh, New York City. Lots of good rock to build on. New Orleans, on the other hand, 
a disaster waiting because we have insisted since uh, uh, the uh, the French first came and then and then the Americans came and we've insisted on trying to control the Mississippi. And so we have all this flooding that happens all the time. And the natural depositing of the, of the silt and, and, and sand and everything down into those areas that built up that area has been cut off. And so, you know, there's a real dilemma because we have been, as a people, building in the wrong place, uh, in the wrong ways for so long. And now we're going to pay the, pay the piper, so to speak, uh, for that. It's a little funny snippet about that. When they first came, the French talked to the Indians. They wanted to have a cooperative re- uh, uh, relationship with them. So they talked with the native people down there who lived in that area. And, and they would hunt and camp and everything. And there were some places, but very few places you could build down there without getting flooded out. And they asked, they said, is there a place where we could build a fort? Could we get your recommendation? And so they told them so. They went down there, and at that season of the year, it was okay. They were able to build their fort, but then came a season where it was just flooded out. And they highly suspected that they had been set up by the natives of the area uh, to build there uh, on purpose. So, so it's very important where we build our lives, where we build our homes, but where we build our lives. A couple of things that we need to remember um, about this. It doesn't say... Here are the things it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the foolish man built poorly, that he used uh, the wrong materials, that he had a poor house plan or anything else. As far as we know, the two are equal in terms of what they, uh, what they built, the quality of their building. The problem is the foundation. And see, that, that really tells me that sometimes we, you know, extreme uh, uh, people who, who go very extreme into the Christian faith might sometimes they come out and they say, well, I have to, I have to you know, Jesus says to, you have to deny your family. You have to this, that. And they say, well, I've got I to leave my family behind or I can't build a family or can't have a family. But what I really believe Jesus is saying is when the family comes in conflict with the kingdom, when, when your soul is at stake because you have a family that is in conflict with the kingdom, you need to make a choice. But if you can raise a family that is in concert with the kingdom of God, you know, that's a glory to God, and that's a wonderful thing. So these two men, they're building the same thing, a house, but on two different foundations. And, and, and what the, the Sandy Foundation could be anything in our lives that is not of God and not of Jesus Christ. It can be pride, that my whole life is around, is around my pride. Everything I do is motivated by pride. Uh, pride in my possessions. Uh, pride in my family, even. Uh, you know, some of us, we do everything for our family. We want our kids to get into the best colleges. We'll give half a million dollars to a college to, <laughs> to get my kid in, like some has been in the news, some of the people doing that. We get, we get motivated and all of our emphases in all too. But if the foundation of our family is in Jesus Christ and everything that we're doing is based upon what Jesus Christ has told us to do and how he has taught us to live, then we have that solid foundation. Now, I'm going to read to you all. This was a little different in the early service. And I'm going to tell you, we're not going to sing our last couple of songs this morning uh, because we're not going to have time for that. And I'm going to read to you. And I, I don't remember the last time I just took a book and read to you. Okay, but, but I'm going to read out of this book uh, by uh, Laura Hillenbrand. I always get her name. Yeah, yeah, Hillenbrand, Laura Hillenbrand. Anybody know this author? 
She's a Pulitzer Prize winner. She wrote the book Seabiscuit, the, the uh, movie Seabiscuit was based upon that. Wonderful movie, wonderful book, I've read that. She uh, wrote the book Team of Rivals, which is about Lincoln and his administration, how Lincoln worked with people who were his exact opposites, and people who, before he was elected president, hated Lincoln. Political rivals, people who ran against him for president, he invited into his, candidate, into his cabinet. And he did that uh, with the idea that he was, would be better off to hear the contrary opinions than to have yes-men sitting around telling him what he wanted to hear. And so when you realize that about Lincoln, you see the brilliance, the genius in Lincoln in doing that. And by the time they had gotten into the war and had worked with Lincoln, well, at the beginning they thought he was, he was a fool, he was an idiot. They thought he was a joke. But men like Stanton, the Secretary of War, Seward, uh, others, they came to love him and understand why he was right and they had been wrong. And by the time he died, they grieved and mourned, mourned as much as anybody for this man who had originally they had seen as a rival. So it's a wonderful book and it's a wonderful look at that administration. And like I say, she's won many awards for that. But she wrote this book, Unbroken. Anybody here read this book? It was a bestseller. Lydia did. Shauna did. Shauna borrowed this co- copy from me one time, and, and she read through it. Uh, I know in the first service, which is a much more literate service, apparently, <laughs> we had some people who had, had read it. Uh, but uh, So that's good, though, in a way, because you're unfamiliar with this. The, the subject of the book is a man named Louis Zapp- Zapparini. Zapparini. Uh, Obviously, that sounds a little Italian. His family uh, was of d- Italian dis- uh, descent. And he lived in California back in, he grew up in the 1920s and 30s in California. And uh, is anybody familiar with him? He, he was on the Olympic team. He ran for our Olympic team in 1936 in the Olympics in Germany, in Berlin. The famous one where Jesse Owens won all the gold medals. And here's... Adolf Hitler up here talking about the Aryan-German race being superior, and here's this African-American winning all these races. And uh, so an interesting Olympics, fascinating Olympics. But this guy, Louis, uh, runs in that Olympics, a young man from California who had spent his childhood as a juvenile delinquent, frequently running from the law. Do you see how a, a bad thing can be a good thing? He was always running from the police And then his brother noticed he's really fast. He should be on the track team. And so he gets on the track team. He becomes the best runner in California, distance runner, and then goes on to the Olympics. In the Olympics, he's disappointed with with his running, and he doesn't doesn't, uh, win any medals. Uh, But everybody is sure that this young man, he is so young at that time, that he is going to be the favorite for the gold medal in the 1940 Olympics. I'm not going to ask you because it might embarrass you if you raised your hand. Uh, because people sometimes, if you say, do you know this, do you know that, they'll raise their hands. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the 1940 Olympics? <laughs> yeah, well, I say, the one that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, it was to take place in Tokyo. But, of course, World War II, they were already, the Japanese and Manchuria and China and other places, they were already fighting. Germany was, was in Eastern Europe primarily, and they were beginning to expand. The war was expanding. We weren't quite involved yet, but they canceled the Olympics. So you can imagine his disappointment. He's going to miss his chance, and by the time they have the next Olympics, he's going to be four years older. He's missing the prime opportunity. 
So uh, Louis joins the Army Air Corps, the predecessor to the Air Force. They didn't have the Air Force. They had the Army Air Corps. And uh, he is in a bomber. He's a pilot. And uh, so he's flying these bombers out in the Pacific, bombing uh, the islands where the Japanese have set up their airstrips to conduct the war. And he eventually is shot down. Uh, well, actually, I don't think he shot down. I think the plane. A lot of those planes at the beginning of the war mechanically had problems. And this, uh, this particular one was a terrible plane, and it just sort of fell apart in midair. And they had 11 men on the crew. Only three survived, including, including Louis Zamperini. Uh, in the book, they describe how he's trapped underwater. He had wires. He was tangled. And, but suddenly the, the, he's, he's freed of all that and he comes up and, there's, and uh, they get the life raft and the two men who survived, all of them are somewhat injured, but they get into the raft. They are there for 47 days in that raft. The Navy had no records of anybody surviving anywhere near, not a third of that time. And so they had been written off. No, uh, they, they quit searching for them after a few days. They were just gone. They were dead. So they're out there. I won't go into all the details, but if you read the book, I remember reading the book, and almost every page I'm going, that's unbelievable, including the parts of his early life, everything, how everything was working along. So here's a guy who's built his life on the athletic ability that he had, the sudden fame that he had as a runner, this promising future that he had. This is the basis, the foundation of his life. And now he's in this bomber, and he is shot down. And now he's going to die at sea. Uh, I think they could have one bite of chocolate. They had some chocolate bars rationed in there. One bite of the chocolate every day and a few drops of water. That's all they had. They last 47 days. During that time, sharks come. And they're being circled by sharks all the time. Uh, a Japanese bomb, uh, or fighter pilot comes and strafes them. And somehow the three of them all still survive. The two are so two of them are so weak they can't get in the water to get away, but they survive even though the raft is hit. Louis got in the water with the sharks. He'd rather be in with the sharks than to get shot. He climbs back in. They keep going. Then a Japanese ship comes and finds them. So in a sense it's a blessing and a curse because they've been found so now they will at least get some sustenance. They won't die but one of the men has already died and they bury him there at sea. The other man is they're, they're skeletal. They have dropped so much weight. Japanese take them to an island to a POW camp. Eventually they end up at a POW camp in, in Japan. During that time and the book goes through this in great detail the beatings that uh, Louis Zapp Zamperini took, especially once they discovered he was a U.S. Olympic runner. And then to, uh, to, they would play with him, and they would take all of the Japanese uh, guards, would race him. And he was so weak and so beaten, he could hardly, hardly crawl. But they would set up a course, and they would race him, so they could say that they beat an Olympic runner. Uh, horrific, particularly one guard named who was nicknamed the bird. And the bird would beat him constantly over the head with a belt. And we're talking about the metal end of the belt, the buckle, constantly. He was uh, set up in front of uh, all the prisoners, a couple hundred prisoners at this point in this camp, and they were ordered to strike him in the face with a closed fist. 
And they were told if they did not hit him hard enough that they would be shot. Now, he told them, he said to the men, hit me hard. 200 men coming through, bam, bam, bam. This is just a couple that, I mean, horrible things done to this man, but he survives. So you see, the book Unbroken implies that he goes through all this, he survives all this. In the end, the war ends, he's, he's freed from the prison, and he's unbroken. But the fact of the matter is, and there was a movie made about this, and it, le- it goes all the way up to him being released from prison, and that's it. Angelina Jolie directed and produced that movie. What They missed the whole point. They missed why he's unbroken. He is broken to shreds. There's nothing left by the time he is released from that prison. He's having nightmares. When he comes back to the U.S., he's an alcoholic. He, he, he's self-destructive. Uh, he is, he is a, a miserable wreck. He is broken. But what I'm going to read to you now, this part I'm going to read, is from the book. And again, I apologize for just reading this out of here, but I can't say it in a way that is as effective as the writer here. Um, it, it begins with uh, Louis has gotten married. His wife is trying in some way to get him out of the dark hole that he lives in. And she has become a Christian. And she has gone and she's heard Louis, uh, Louis, uh, Billy Graham in Los Angeles. In Billy Graham's history, those Los Angeles crusades were a huge thing. So he has this crusade going, well, Louis Zamperini is, he's not a religious man and his only, you know, he has his stereotypes of preachers and he's expecting he's going to go and find this, uh, you know, uh, southern, uh, thick-witted, uh, poorly dressed preacher up there ranting and raving. And it says, when Graham appeared, uh, Louis was surprised. He expected the sort of frothy, holy, rolling charlatan that he'd seen preaching near Torrance when he was a boy. What he saw instead was a brisk, neatly groomed man, two years younger than himself. He had gone with his wife with the agreement that they would leave immediately when the sermon was over, and they would not turn around, they would not go back. They were getting out of there. So he listens to the sermon And there's the first part, he's awake and he's listening and he's intense on what Graham is saying. And then Graham tells the story of the woman caught in sin and adultery and how Jesus writes something on the ground. And then then Graham says, darkness doesn't hide the eyes of God. God takes down your life from the, from the time you were born to the time you die. And when you stand before God on the great judgment day, you're going to say, Lord, I wasn't such a bad fellow. And they are going to pull down the screen and they are going to shoot the moving picture of your life from the cradle to the grave every minute, every day. And your own words, your own thoughts, your own deeds are going to condemn you as you stand before God on that day. And God is going to say, depart from me. Well, Louis hears those words. And he is indignant. He is burning with rage. A match has been struck. And he thinks to himself, I am a good man. I am a good man. Even as he had this thought, he felt the lie in it. He knew what he had become. Somewhere under his anger, there was a lurking, nameless uneasiness. 
the shudder of sharks rasping their backs along the bottom of the raft. There was a thought he must not think, a memory he must not see. With the urgency of a bolting animal, he wanted to run. Graham looked out over his audience. Here tonight, there's a drowning man. He is lost in the sea of life. He told of hell and salvation, of men saved and men lost, always coming back to the stooped figure of Jesus drawing letters in the sand, asking who here is without sin. Louis grew more and more angry and more and more spooked. Every head bow, every eye closed, said Graham, offering a traditional invitation to repentance, a declaration of faith and absolution. Louis grabbed his wife Cynthia's arm, stood up, and bowled his way from the tent. That night, Louis lay helpless as the belt whipped his head. The body that hunched over him was that of the bird. The face he saw in his dream was that of the devil. Louis rose from his nightmares to find Cynthia there. All morning Sunday, she tried to coax him into seeing Graham again. Louis, angry and threatened, refused. For several hours, Cynthia and Louis argued. Exhausted by her persistence, Louis finally agreed to go with one caveat. That when Graham said every head bowed, every eye closed, they were leaving. So under the tent that night, Graham spoke of how the world was in an age of war, an age defined by persecution and suffering. Why, Graham asked, is God silent while good men suffer? He began his answer by asking his audience to consider the evening sky. If you look into the heavens tonight on this beautiful California night, I see the stars and I can see the footprints of God. I think to myself, my father, my heavenly father, hung them there with a flaming fingertip and holds them there with the power of his omnipotent hand. And he runs the whole universe. And he's not too busy running the whole universe to count the hairs on my head and to see a sparrow when it falls. Because God is interested in me. God spoke in creation. Louis was winding tight. He remembered the day when he and Phil, slowly dying on the raft, had slid into the doldrums. Above them, the sky had been a swirl of light. Below, the stilled ocean had mirrored the sky, its clarity broken only by a leaping fish. Odd to silence, forgetting his thirst and his hunger, forgetting that he was dying, Louis had shown and known only gratitude. That day, he had believed that what lay around them was the work of infinitely broad, benevolent hands, a gift of compassion. Can you believe that? There in that raft, lost, he looks up into the sky, and he feels the benevolence and compassion of God. But in the years since, that thought had been lost. Graham went on. He spoke of God reaching into the world through miracles and the intangible blessings that give men the strength to outlast their sorrows. God works miracles one after another. He said, God says, if you suffer, I'll give you the grace to go forward. Louis found himself thinking of the moment at which he had woken in the sinking hole of the green hornet, how there had been no hope for him, how there was no way that he was going to rise to the surface again, how he was dead. He remembered the Japanese bomber swooping over the rafts, riddling them with bullets, and yet not a single bullet had struck him or Phil or Mac. He had fallen into unbearably cruel worlds, and yet he had borne them. And when he turned these memories over in his mind, the only explanation he could find was one in which the impossible was possible. What God asks of men, said Graham, is faith. His invisibility is the truest test of that faith. To know who sees him, God makes himself unseen. Louis, 
sitting there, shone with sweat. He felt accused, cornered, pressed by a frantic urge to flee. As Graham asked for heads to bow and eyes to close, Louis stood abruptly and rushed for the street, towing his wife Cynthia behind him. Nobody leaving, said Graham. You can leave while I'm preaching, but not now. Everybody is still and quiet, every head bowed, every eye closed. He asked the faithful to come forward. Louis pushed past the congregation in his row, charging for the exit. His mind was tumbling. He felt enraged, violent, on the edge of explosion. He wanted to hit someone. And as he reached the aisle, he stopped. Cynthia, the rows of bowed heads, the sawdust underfoot, the tent around him, all disappeared. A memory long beaten back, the memory from which he had run the evening before, was upon him. He was on the raft. There was gentle Phil crumpled up before him. Max breathing skeleton, endless ocean stretching away in every direction, the sun lying over them, the cunning bodies of the sharks waiting, circling. He was a body on a raft, dying of thirst. He felt words whisper from his swollen lips. It was a promise thrown at heaven, a promise he had not kept, a promise he had allowed himself to forget until just this instant. He had said, if you will save me, I will serve you forever. When he had said those words on the raft, a gentle rain began to fall. And then, standing under a circus tent on a clear night in downtown Los Angeles, Louis felt rain falling again. It was the last flashback he would ever have. Louis let go of Cynthia and turned toward Graham. He felt supremely alive. He began walking. This is it, said Graham. God has spoken to you. You come on. This is the last little section. Cynthia kept her eyes on Louis all the way home, and when they entered the apartment, Louis went straight to his cache of liquor. It was a time of night when the need usually took hold of him, but for the first time in years, Louis had no desire to drink. He carried the bottles to the kitchen sink, opened them, and poured their contents into the drain. Then he hurried through the apartment, gathering packs of cigarettes, a secret stash of girly magazines, everything that was part of his ruined years. He heaved it all down the trash chute. In the morning, he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, the bird hadn't come into his dreams. The bird would never come again. Louis dug out the Bible that had been issued to him by the Air Corps, mailed home to his mother when he was believed dead. He walked to Barnsdale Park where he and Cynthia had gone in better days and where Cynthia had gone alone whenever he'd been on his benders. He found a spot under a tree. He sat down and began reading that Bible. Resting in the shade into the stillness, Louis felt profound peace. When he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make of him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. Silently, softly, he wept. Louis would go on to do something with that experience. He never lost his faith again in God. All that brokenness, he was now a new creation. He was unbroken because in God's healing, 
It's as if there had never been a wound or a scar. He was healed. So the first thing he thought he needed to do was go back to Japan, the last place he had been held prisoner, and there find the men who had been his prison guards. So he went, and the Japanese cooperated, and the military, the American military, working with them, brought all of these guards into a single room, and Louis Zamperini forgave them. For years he had planned how he could punish them, and now he forgave them and witnessed to them to his faith in Jesus Christ. The only one who was not there was the bird, the worst of them all. And the bird, for years he tried to get a meeting with the bird, but the bird would never show up. He was afraid. He could not believe that Zamperini would forgive him, so he was afraid he was being set up. Zamperini came to love the Japanese people. They invited him to run in the Olympics in Japan a few years ago. And uh, he went along and the people cheered him as a hero. An example of a life that had been built on sand, but had been rebuilt on the rock of Jesus Christ became a witness to the world. CBS Sports even did a wonderful video during the Olympics. I remember during that Olympics featuring him and telling his story and telling about his conversion. Uh, He could have spent all his years in that house on that sand, dying bitter and drunk and with a life that had not shown any light but he chose the rock. What I want us to do this morning is rather than to sing our last song, we're going to say together hymn number 357 in your hymnals. Just as I am without one plea. This, of course, is Billy Graham's, and you can stay seated. This is Billy Graham's famous invitation hymn that he always used. It was the invitation hymn when he accepted Jesus Christ into his life, when he placed his faith in Jesus. This was the hymn that was sung at that time. So he never abandoned that hymn as the invitation. But I want us to recognize that coming to Jesus or coming to Jesus again in our lives is as simple as saying, I'm coming. Just as I am. I come with no pleas. I'm not bringing a resume. I'm not coming to justify to you why you should save me. None of that matters. Just as I am, I come. And I hope that we would, in our hearts this morning, say to Jesus, Jesus, if there are places in my life that I have been building on sand, please, Lord, be my rock in my family, in my relationships, in my life, in my church. Be my rock. So let's read this this through. Just as I am, without one plea, But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not, to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, oh, though tossed about, 
with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind. Yea, all I need in thee to find. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every barrier down. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Amen. So we're going to leave in just a moment. I'll have a brief prayer here. Um, I realize it's it's kind of a heavy message, and uh, I had, had a hard time reading that story and um, feeling uh, what he must have been going through as he made that that decision. You know, it, it's so easy in life to get confused about things. We had a, a, a good friend back at my last church, and her family was in the Coast Guard. And so they frequently moved. And one time they were moving, and the movers came, the guys came, and they saw this urn up on the shelf, this beautiful little urn. And on it was the name Virginia. And they came to her and they said, how would you like for us to handle Virginia? And she didn't have the heart to say to them, that's a souvenir from Virginia. <laughs> they thought it was a loved one's cremains and all too. You see, in life, sometimes we get a little mixed up. We interpret things and sometimes it's easy to see how we could make that error. And Jesus Christ in that Sermon on the Mount is going back and saying, be very, very careful in your lives that you just don't assume something is the way to go. That, uh, you know, broad is the way. It's very apparent that leads to destruction. So my prayer for us as we go out this day, that we would make that choice for Jesus Christ, that we would test everything in our life against the word of God and Jesus Christ and say, am I doing this on solid rock or are my motivations somewhere else, or have I misread my life and what God's purpose is for it. May we go this week and contemplate on those things and let his spirit guide us. Go in his peace with his blessings, and amen.